This is a Federal News Network podcast. More than two decades after the 9-11 attacks, some victims have not been compensated. My next guest took over the Victim Compensation Fund when it was foundering a few years back. Now tens of thousands of people have received payments from that fund. Rupa Bhattacharya is special master for the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund at the Justice Department and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. She joins me now. Ms. Bhattacharya, good to have you on. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And you are something of a specialist in being a special master of compensation funds. That is a narrow specialist. I guess that's not all you've done, but tell us how you got to that point and what that job actually is. Sure. It certainly didn't start out that way. I I entered the Justice Department as a regular trial attorney, litigated for years defending the government and government employees in federal district courts all over the country. But in my last job prior to the 9-11 fund job, I oversaw two other compensation funds, the Vaccine Injury Compensation Fund, which was set up to pay that very small number of people who do have side effects from the administration of childhood vaccines, as well as the flu vaccine, and the RECA Fund, which is the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act program, which was set up to pay compensation to people who were injured from U.S. government nuclear testing that was done out west in the 50s and 60s. So these are funds that are established by Congress, correct? And the Justice Department administers them. What does the job take? I mean, how does the process work? So they're all set up a little bit differently. The RICA fund is an administrative fund. And so the applications come into the Justice Department. We make the decisions with respect to the applications according to a, a number of statutory criteria. We pay the claimants. And if people are unhappy with what happens in the RICA fund, they can go to court and sue the department. The vaccine fund is set up a little bit differently. The cases there are actually adjudicated by the special master in the federal court. They're in the court of claims. And so they make decisions on those cases, but they're subject to much less rigorous evidentiary requirements. And then again, the Justice Department represents the Secretary of Health and Human Services with the defendant in those cases. And is there a set of administrative judges or people that do this? Because when people have claims, say, at the Veterans Affairs Department or whatever, there are administrative judges or sometimes administrative law judges different function, but decide these things at that level. Do you have a staff like that or people that do this? I do. So at the September 11th Victims Compensation Fund, we have a staff of claim reviewers who review the claims. And we also have a number of hearing officers who hear our administrative appeals and actually get to listen to the claimants and hear their stories. And so tell us more about the 9-11 Victims Fund. You were appointed to it a number of years ago, but it had kind of stopped paying out people. Yes. So the Dallin Fund is sort of an, an, an interesting story. You know, it was originally created in October of 2001. So immediately following the attacks, that was the fund that was run by Special Master Feinberg, Ken Feinberg. And it paid out over $7 billion to over 5,000 people. And then it closed in 2004. In 2011, it became clear that people were still getting sick from exposure to the toxins at all three sites at the Pentagon, at Shanksville, and of course, in New York City at the World Trade Center site. And so Congress reopened the VCF to try to compensate those people who were now getting sick. But it was in a very odd position. No one knew in 2011 how many people had been exposed, how many people might get sick, what conditions they might actually come down with in the end. And so it was a very sort of open-ended proposition. And when it was created in 2011, it was set up for five years. 
So it was a temporary program with a very limited mandate. I had no idea what its payment population was going to look like. And so when I came in in 2016, it had stalled a little bit because it was going to expire and Congress was in the process of trying to renew it. And we were still attempting to figure out how many claimants might actually ultimately be eligible. And that's really sort of the challenge that I faced when I got there. No one knew at the time that we'd have over 7,000 claimants. Wow. We're speaking with Rupa Bhattacharya. She's special master for the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund at Justice and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. So what did you do to revitalize it? And now you've paid out 35,000 people have received compensation. Yes. In total, we've paid out almost 45,000, 35,000 just in my tenure. We did a number of things, actually. We staffed up. We brought in a lot more claim reviewer. We streamlined our processes. We created a new claim form so that we could get better information. We went out and did a tremendous amount of outreach and education, both to the affected communities and to the attorneys who bring the claims so that they knew what they needed to do and what documents they needed to file and how to make the claims move faster. We sort of went in a concerted effort. I always say we took the program apart and put it back together again to try to make it work faster and better for the claimants who were coming into the program. And I'm a little puzzled by the number 45,000. I mean, we know there were police and firefighters right on the scene, rescue workers, and of course the people lost in the buildings had families and so forth. Then there were people kind of in the neighborhood. Then there were people watching from across the river from apartments. How do you get to 45,000 people eligible for cash compensation? Sure. So our program compensates at all three sites, Shanksville, Pentagon, and the World Trade Center. In New York, our sort of geographic zone is all of lower Manhattan, south of Canal Street. In addition to the usual first responders, right, the fire, the police, the EMS who showed up to work on the site, there were also all of the construction workers and the debris removal experts and the asbestos abatement people and the cleaning people who went into the buildings to remove all of that dust. Many of them are now facing toxic conditions, including many cancers as a result of their exposure to the dust. And it's not just them. It also includes people who lived, worked, went to school in that area of lower Manhattan, who are now similarly breathed in that dust and are facing serious conditions as a result of that exposure. And are there special characteristics of these diseases that are markers for that dust as opposed to someone who's been smoking two packs of camels a day ever since then? So that's a good question. And we at the Victims' Compensation Fund, we're the lawyers, not the doctors. So we try to stay away from the medical determinations. We have a sister program at the Department of Health and Human Services. It operates out of the National Institutes for Occupational Safety and Health, NIOSH, called the World Trade Center Health Program. And the World Trade Center Health Program actually makes the medical determinations about which conditions are related to 9-11 exposure. Got it. And listening to you, I get the sense that you're someone that really understands the inner workings of complicated machinery, in this case, the federal bureaucracy in all its glory. Is that how you describe yourself? Because you said you took the program apart and put it back together. It's a simple thing to say, but that's a heavy lift. I had a tremendously flexible and supportive team. They were willing to weather a lot of really major changes, not least of which because in 2018, we made the determination that we were not going to have sufficient funding to pay all of the claims that were coming into the program. And so another series of changes was made then. But, you know, when you have a team that is willing to sort of roll with you and 
give you great ideas and make great suggestions and do what needs to be done because they know how important it is to see our claimants get paid, that's what gets it done. And all credit goes to them. And after you left the fund, you said you were there for a period of time and now you are retired or what are you doing these days? I left the fund just a few weeks ago, actually, to take a position at Georgetown Law Center in their Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection. So I'll be doing some litigation on constitutional issues, which is getting a little bit back to my roots, as well as hopefully down the road, a little bit of teaching. All right. Well, if I was in law school, I'd hope to get you as a professor. Rupa Bhattacharya is special master, or was until she just retired, for the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund at the Justice Department and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And And I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that that what we say and do especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, 
I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time.
Ladies and gentlemen, we need you. The Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks is looking for you to help support veterans, help with youth scholarships, and be a force in your community. Being a member of the Elks is where you can do all this and much more. We are 31 lodges strong across the state of Iowa. Help pass on our principles of charity, justice, brotherly love, and fidelity. If interested, go to elks.org and use the lodge locator to find a lodge near you. Elks care. Elks share. Brought to you by the Iowa Elks Association. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.